Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Hi, and welcome to this special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. And I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. Normally, we're the hosts of Out to Lunch in our respective cities, but during the course of this current public health crisis, we're joining forces to bring you a statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance. We're sharing this current crisis with the rest of the country and much of the world. So some of what we're going to look at is big picture stuff to try and make sense of what is going on globally and nationally. But we're mostly going to focus on how this current health crisis affects our local economy and our personal finances here at home. Normally, we're very conscious of the differences between our three areas of the state, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Acadiana. But we're going through this crisis together. And I think you're going to find that as we explore the challenges facing us, at least for right now, We have more in common than separates us. One of the things we have in common is none of us are actually out to lunch. We're all quarantined in our respective homes or offices. Normally, I'd be hosting out to lunch New Orleans at Commander's Palace. While Commander's is closed for dining, they're doing pickup and delivery. Their pickup and delivery menu changes daily, and you can find out what's available by going to their website, commanderspalace.com. In Baton Rouge, our regular out-to-lunch restaurant, Mansur's on the Boulevard, is doing pickup and delivery. You can get a number of Mansur's signature dishes. Your favorite one is probably available. The best way to enjoy a meal from Mansur's is to give them a call. Their number is 225-923-3366. 225-923-3366. In Lafayette, the restaurant that hosts us for out-to-lunch in Acadiana, the French Press, is doing curbside takeout. And you can also get meals delivered directly from the restaurant or through Waiter and Grubhub. The French Press now has a family dinner menu, and you can reach them at 337-233-9449. That's 337-233-9449. Now, we often hear the era we're living in right now is described as uncharted waters. That term comes from people who navigate the seas using charts, basically maps of the ocean with known impediments to sailing, like, like reefs. While it's true that most of us have never lived through a worldwide pandemic, we have lived through the ups and downs of the stock market. Some of us are old enough to have been through more than one of these swings. The only thing we always say when the market sinks is, if you hold on, everything will be okay. The market will go back up. But the cause of this global financial crisis is something none of us have experienced, a global health crisis. So are we, in fact, in truly uncharted waters and where the old rules might not apply? To answer this question, let's turn to Ricardo Thomas. Ricardo is with the financial consultancy firm Thomas Waddell & Associates in New Orleans. Ricardo, here's the multi-billion dollar question. Is it all going to be okay this time if we just hold on? Or is there something different going on here? Well, Peter, I think given everything that's going on, there's a tendency to panic. And, and wonder, will uh, things return to normal? But the reality is, while the coronavirus is different, we have uh, in the past dealt with various other health uh, viruses. 
and so forth. So I do believe that things will return to normal. It's just a matter of time. Well, is it a, what do you view this as? Is it a major turning point on how people view stocks in general? For instance, Ricardo, my, my parents grew up in the Depression, and we, of course, never talked about stocks or anything like that at the, uh, at the dinner table. Is, does this change things forever? I don't think it does at all. I mean, we're living in a time now where all of us are being asked to be more responsible for our retirement planning uh, to the point of your parents. They probably grew up uh, with the old defined uh, benefit pension plan you know, on the job. Now we're living in the era where most folks have the 401k, where you're having to make the investment decisions as to how those monthly dollars are allocated, or even the the allocation of the dollars that your particular employer may put set aside for you. So it really causes us to be more engaged and involved, but it's a matter of having proper information and not panicking, especially in times like this. Emotion usually causes us to make rash decisions right now that end up coming back to haunt us in the long term. Sometimes you've heard it said that the best decision is no decision in a situation like that. Uh, is that one of the things you're telling Absolutely. clients? One of the things, I mean, obviously we're prone to staying close to our TVs and radios right now to get uh, current information on the virus. But at the same time as we're getting information on the virus and how to properly cope, we're inundated with a lot of information as to what's going on in the stock market. And because of that in and of itself, it will cause people to pay more attention and possibly panic because they really don't understand everything that's going on. When in reality right now, given how far the market has gone down, it's really uh, kind of too late to do anything now. So it's a matter of riding out the storm or if there are dollars available in cash, taking advantage of some of the bargains in good companies that are available out there right now. And that's what I was going to ask you, Ricardo. I mean, what is it that drives people to start buying at this level? Well, the thing is, again, is making sure they stick to their their investment fundamentals. Investing, which is quite different from speculating. You know, you, we can go down the street in New Orleans on Poydras to speculate. It's called the casino. But investing uh, really <laughs> requires a long-term strategy. And we're talking about four to five years or longer. So that being the case, even right now, you have to stick to those fundamentals, take emotion out of the equation, but also still adhering to the proper selection process as it relates to the type of assets that you put into your portfolio. So whether you're using individual stocks or bonds or even the different types of mutual funds and so forth, those same principles that applied 30 days ago still apply today. Were there any red flags, Ricardo, that, that we should be looking for? And like, is there any level that this, that the market could go to that you would say, okay, wait a minute, this isn't the same kind of same kind of system that we've known and, and been able to apply these rules of rationality to all along? Stephanie, that's a good question. And the reality is right now, given how far the market has already come, and also looking at the volatility and the volume of what's going on in the market right now, really you're starting to see a bit of a sea change where folks, the smart money, as I like to call it, has already started looking for bargains and opportunities to uh, to go out and rebuild their portfolio. So for the average person, really, if you're in mutual funds or if you employ or deployed proper uh, investment strategies beforehand, it's literally right now just riding it out. There's really no safe haven, if you will, to run to at this point. 
I mean, the damage is done, you know, and, and as I was telling a client yesterday, if, if all of industry and all of the companies go out of business anyway, what are you going to need money for? <laughs> you know, when are you going to use it? So it, it's really a, a, a situation of just writing it out. And most importantly, I'll add, is if we look to history uh, as for guidance, if you will, history has shown that industry is at the top of the totem pole. I mean, when we look at the response from government and so forth, it's always about getting these companies back uh, running and operating because we need their goods and services, but we also need them for employment. And so when we look at that, and especially here, given that we are in New Orleans and uh, we came through Hurricane Katrina, we know the number one mandate was getting companies and businesses back up and running, which included the Superdome, which really changed the tide of as it relates to recovery. So that's the thing we have to look at. As long as we realize that companies are in business to make money, then all we have to do is follow that trend and invest wisely. So so what I'm curious about is, is what's what in your mind is actually going to be the pivot point where the markets respond positively? Is it going to be when, you know, the Congress gets its act together and puts a stimulus package into place? Is it going to be whenever the U.S. or Louisiana or whatever, it, you know, kind of stops producing this, the, the same number of cases on a basis? I mean, what is the market actually going to respond to in terms of positive news that would give you know, folks who have money tied up there, especially, you know, nearing retirement of uh, the belief that things are actually moving in the right direction? Well, I'll, I'll say all of the above. So let's, let's start with the, the last question first. Well, when you said for individuals who are close to retirement, the reality is the closer you are to retirement, the more you should be shifting automatically your portfolio to be more conservative because you're going from a growth mode to now what I like to call a harvest or an income mode. So that should have been going on pre this uh, pandemic anyway. But as to your other points, as it relates to uh, Congress and the stimulus, even with this morning right now, the market is up uh, quite a bit in response in hopes that Congress gets its act together and they can come together in agreement to get something done. And so just the, the idea of them working together with a plan has already netted positive uh, uh, effects on the market. But then looking at it more on a statewide level, as we get more testing and as there is more certainty, I think that's the key. When you look at what has really impacted the market as a whole, the market historically likes certainty. And what this, this virus brought in, given that it, it was an unknown uh, and, and so many things we didn't know about it, there was this knee-jerk reaction as to, well, I don't know what's going on, so I'm, there's this uh, flight to safety. But as we get more testing, as we get more aware of the symptoms, and most importantly, eventually come up with some type of, of uh, a vaccine or what have you, then that's going to instill confidence for folks to get off of the sidelines and get back out in the market. But the reality is, the last point I mentioned, from a retirement standpoint, you know, whether you, when you're looking at least five years out or more, nothing has changed. I mean, the reality is history has shown that there have always been bumps in the road. We can go all the way back to Black Friday in 1987, to the dot-com bubble in 2000, to 9-11 in 2001, to the mortgage and bank crisis in 2008, and all the various different things that have gone on in between. 
And, and so that number one tells us is that there is no perfect road. There is no perfect, you know, uh, upside. It's not going to always be peaches and cream. So as long as we stick to our fundamentals and having a good game plan, we should be fine. And Ricardo, one of the things that makes us look a little different is people are talking about the recession being more severe and maybe shorter, or at least uh, um, at least it's sort of appearing that that's the way it might be now. What do you tell people that are thinking, oh, I'm going to time the market. I'm going to get in just at the bottom there. Is, is that kind of a fool's errand? You know, there is no perfect market timing. There are different steps and strategies, such as dollar cost averaging, that is very prudent at times like this when you can take advantage of the cheaper price prices of various different stocks or even mutual funds but as far as anyone trying to you know guess the market in those perfect times i'll put it this way uh, as successful as warren buffett has been for so many years he still hasn't been able to perfectly time the market so if buffett can't do it none of the rest of us can <laughs> and one last thing ricardo i think of 0809 and one of the things i remember that was so difficult is when people got out they never got back in and they missed really a tremendous 11-year rally. How do you deal with that with clients? You are absolutely right. And that really goes back to my first point of taking the emotion out of it. Because you're right, back in 2008 and 2009, it's because of the emotion and really the lack of knowledge of understanding how the market works that caused people to make decisions that they could not recover from because as you said, they stayed on the sideline, never got back in, and they missed out on this great bull run that we've had. You know, so my job really has been uh, talking folks off the ledge, if you will, and utilizing history as a guide and saying, remember what happened in 2008 and 2009, and, and just reminding them of the old adage of the definition of insanity, keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. We can't make the same mistake that we made in 2008 as far as, you know, uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, if you will, and not getting back or staying in the market. And they don't ring a bell when it's time to get back in. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Ricardo Thomas is a financial consultant of Thomas Waddell and Associates in New Orleans. Ricardo, thanks so much for joining us on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. And thank you for having me. You're listening to a special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana with Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, Christian Mater in Lafayette, and I'm Stephanie Regal here in Baton Rouge. One thing you don't need us to tell you is that we're living through a public health crisis. It's difficult for all of us dealing with the disruption to our lives, but imagine how much more difficult life has suddenly gotten for people in the healthcare sector. Mike Berto is a healthcare economist at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana based in Baton Rouge. Mike has been in this position for more than 15 years, and that experience has elevated him to the status of a recognized national authority on healthcare and healthcare reform. Mike, 1.6 million people in Louisiana have their health insurance with Blue Cross and Blue Shield. So let's start with the obvious and most important question. If I'm one of those 1.6 million people and I contract COVID-19, am I covered by any special federal provision or am I paying the standard copay according to whatever personal health plan I have? Yes, uh, Stephanie, absolutely. The first thing you need to know is um, when you go to get tested for COVID-19, there's not going to be any of the normal hurdles you might run across. No prior authorizations. Um, we won't charge a copay or a coinsurance or a deductible. If you need to get tested for COVID-19, 
Um, we're going to take a hard look at the diagnostic tests because we want people as much as possible to follow the guidance of the Centers for Disease Control because we think that establishing that standard throughout the industry will give us our best chance of understanding what the disease is, how it spreads, and exactly what the most effective courses of treatment are. Um, in addition to that, if you don't know if you're affected by COVID, but you're a, a Blue Cross member who has a prescription maintenance medication for blood pressure or cholesterol, please make sure you're getting your scripts refilled. Stick with it. If you need to go early and get them refilled, we're not going to say, oh, it's not long enough. Just go ahead and get it done and we'll take care of the timing issues right away. Mike, we, we've seen so many dire predictions about the, you know, the, the curve of this disease and everything. Have y'all modeled out what the dollar impact is going to be on the healthcare sector and on the health insurance industry? How much is this going to ultimately cost us? Um, well, there's no doubt that it's going to have an accelerated impact on um, the way we spend money. Blue Cross in Louisiana, you know, we're a not-for-profit, so the market going up and down affects our clients a lot, but it doesn't affect us as much. We um, have spent a lot of time, especially since Hurricane Katrina, building up a strong rainy day fund, and believe me, it's pouring down rain right now, even if you can't see it. So we feel very confident in our ability to continue to pay claims. On a normal day, on a normal month, we're putting about $300 million into the Louisiana healthcare economy. I don't expect that to go down, certainly. Um, but, you know, there's going to be a balance. I've noticed that a lot of people who were scheduling maybe not as critical uh, medical care are putting that aside right now, maybe waiting a little while to make room for this new disease state and the new people coming through. And so I'm not looking for gigantic jumps in the spending right away, but we will monitor that very carefully. My job, in fact, will be to forecast that based on people coming in and out of their insurance as the data becomes available over the next few weeks. I'm curious, you know, one thing that, 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 I, that I heard about today was that we're seeing a lot of folks that are you know, losing their jobs, some of them hopefully temporarily, and, and with that, medical benefits, healthcare benefits, healthcare insurance. So, I mean, how do you expect this to impact the healthcare system generally? I mean, if people start moving on to government plans, if they're moving out of uh, private insured plans, I mean, what's going to happen? Yeah, those are great questions. You know, we've managed to build a healthcare system that can't really exist without third-party payers. If you don't have a third-party backing you up and you have a serious illness, you're in bad shape, let's face it. So what we've built, and really a lot of this falls on the ACA, on the Affordable Care Act, we've got a continuum of health insurance that you can access very easily. The main thing is, if you lose coverage at work because your hours get cut or you lose your job, don't panic. The Affordable Care Act is there, and losing your coverage at work is an automatic open enrollment trigger for healthcare.gov. So anyone who loses their employer-based coverage, if they don't want to buy COBRA when they're released, of course, you're, you have access to your employer's based coverage for the first 18 months you're out of your job. COBRA can be expensive because your employer is not required to contribute anymore. If that doesn't work for you, you can go to healthcare.gov and they will screen you based on your expected income for federal help to help you pay your premiums, to help you pay your deductibles, and also they'll screen you for Medicaid. Louisiana is one of the few states in the South that has taken up the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion. 
That's a huge deal for the citizens in the state today because it means anybody at 138% of the poverty line or below is eligible for free health insurance through the state. And when you go to healthcare.gov, if your income that you report is low enough, they'll refer you to the Medicaid program. Mike, our healthcare system was already, I wouldn't say on the brink, but there were already so many questions and problems. Once the sort of the dust clears from this, I mean, is this going to be the crisis that sort of pushed us towards a new healthcare payer system? I mean, what do you see looking out long term from this? I think it's a little early to comment on major changes down the road. Um, a lot of the things that um, the uh, political campaigns were proffering as solutions, they were a little far-fetched in terms of financing, in terms of actually working in a situation like the U.S. system. But what, what is going to be very evident is that our system, our hospital system, is going to show up to be much stronger than we expected. And Louisiana is going to be kind of on the cutting edge of that experiment right now. We did have an accelerated rate of cases of COVID here in the state, and we already had more than 50% of our population on public health insurance, either Medicare or Medicaid or the VA, more than half of our citizens. That makes us the only state that had that number. So we're going to be studied really hard when this is over. We're going to be looking very carefully at how public financing of healthcare worked compared to private financing of healthcare. And I'll tell you, when private finances, it's, uh, there's more money going into the system than when the public system finances. And right now, I think we'd all agree, we need to keep that money flowing as quickly as possible to hospitals, doctors, clinics, everybody who's taking care of these people. And Mike, uh, this is kind of a bricks and mortar question, but sometimes I'll talk to a business and they'll say that they expand their capacity and the, of course, the line is always, uh, you build your church for Easter Sunday. And uh, do you think after this, we'll see hospitals uh, expand their capacity? Well, it depends. Um, if we see recurrences of diseases like this, it wouldn't surprise me. It's worth remembering, though, that um, the hospital systems here in the state are supported, and they did have a little excess capacity, I think, before this got started. And what's really going to be interesting to watch is the emergence of telehealth as a substitute as we go forward. Um, we've had telehealth systems in place. The uptake hasn't been that strong. But I find that this particular emergency is really driving people to use Teladoc, you know, online doc. Our Blue Care, for example, one of the things we do to make it easier for our 1.6 million members is we took the copays off of using Teladoc. And so now we know we've seen this big uptick in traffic. In fact, a lot of hospitals around the state have their own version of the Teladoc system. And you can use theirs. If you use ours, the copays are zero. You might have to pay a little to use the hospital or the clinic's version. But I think. The uh, I always expected millennials to really jump on the bandwagon and make that go. I think this is going to be the push that gets us older folks to really embrace um, going to the dock on our tablet or on our smartphone. There seems to have been a number of public policy changes that have been put in place to try and loosen up access to telehealth. You see a lot of that stuff sticking around? Well, you know, it's a lot easier to um, to undo something. Once it's done, it's hard to put it back. So I would say if the public gets their hands, gets their hooks into telehealth, then it really works for them. 
you know, it'll go forward really rapidly. The support system that we've put in place to make sure this will work is worth mentioning also. We have about 2,500 employees scattered around the state and we are fully open for business. We've managed to remote work um, a huge proportion, like me, of our workforce. And I mean, if we can work from home, then it would make sense that Teladoc is really gonna take off and become a more important piece. Waiting in a, in a doctor's um, waiting room is probably not the best use of your time every day of the week, right? So uh, I'm expecting this uh, to continue to grow, and I think that people who want to put more restrictions on it will probably encounter more resistance. Mike, what is the number one question that you have heard from employers over the past week? As, as y'all's phones have been ringing off the hook, no doubt. W what do they want to know? Well, employers want to know about paying their bills because when their cash flow is interrupted, they're concerned that our cash flow would be interrupted. And we are essentially, you know, on a, on a normal day, passing through 85% of the money that comes in the door is going right back out to pay somebody's medical bills. So I want to let employers know via this engine that we are, um, we still need them to pay their premiums. We still, we will put that money to very good use out in the marketplace. And we are talking about negotiating and trying to figure out if there's a long-term option for how to handle um, scheduling premium payments if people are late or have interruptions in their cash flow. We haven't made any decisions about that yet, and we will announce changes as they become available. But at this time, I'm going to just ask employers to keep submitting premiums on behalf of your employees. Mike Berto is a healthcare economist at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Louisiana. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on Out to Lunch Louisiana. Thank you so much for having me and you guys stay safe. You're listening to a special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana with Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge, Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, and I'm Christian Mater in Lafayette. Here in Acadiana, we're no strangers to things going wrong. Uh, most recently, we had the massive floods of August in 2016, which caused major disruptions to both social and business life here in Acadiana. Uh, and economically, we are a major player in Louisiana's oil and gas industry, and we, we've seen you know, more than our fair share of boom and bust cycles. The local chapter of the United Way has had a visible and valuable presence here through all of our recent crises. After years in local government, Carly Onlabar took over as president and CEO of United Way Acadiana in February of this year. Uh, Carly, I'm sure when you took over, you had all kinds of plans, and now you know, a few weeks onto the job, we're hit with a pandemic, um, the price of oil has, you know, dipped all the way down to, you know, $20 a barrel or something to that effect. Um, you know, from your perspective, what's the immediate impact on all this and on Acadiana? Well, I think just like across the state, um, we have people that are really trying to figure out the impact. I think United Way has, as you referenced, has a long history in being involved in disasters and you know, South Louisiana, most of those disasters are either a flood or a hurricane, which are just so different than um, how we need to respond to a pandemic. So I think one of the first responses that everybody is having is retraining themselves, even what a disaster means. And so by that, I mean, you know, we're used to like, let's cook a big uh, pot of jambalaya or gumbo or whatever, and let's feed everybody who needs to be fed. Well, right now, two things, the peak of this crisis probably hasn't hit from a human services perspective, but also a lot of our traditional responses that kick in as disaster relief, um, because we're in South Louisiana, are the exact wrong instincts. So we're spending a lot of our time right now re-educating people on what 
what it means um, to be in a disaster like this. Um, you know, and I think we've even been, of course, reviewing some of our disaster plans and things like that. And, you know, you just, um, when you've lived in South Louisiana a long time, even when you try to write more broadly, it's, it's your instincts are preparing for flood and hurricane. So it's, it's, uh, it's making sure that we think differently because we're in a pandemic now. So you, you said that in a lot of ways, the, the real crisis in the human services sector hasn't really hit yet. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, I don't think we've seen the peak of the medical, the medical emergency as, as we've heard already on this show. So we, we expect more sick people in the state, but I also think, you know, we had people who um, are just starting to lose um, their, their jobs. So they're just starting to lose their incomes. Um, You know, the governor closed the schools. I think that was March 13th. And so that was when people's childcare situations really started to change and, and, had different, you know, we're still recovering and and figuring out what the food needs are going to look like. Um, you know, and then the stay at home, stay at home order has, um, also just changed some people's employment. So I think, you know, the income drops that we're going to see and the food needs that we're going to see those toughest times are ahead of us, not behind us. Um, same with the, the medical crisis. And, and Carly, I, I know in the, in the capital region, for instance, you know, the Capital Area United Way has has struggled as its workforce giving campaign has seen, you know, numbers drop in recent years at a time when the need for the services that the partner agencies, United Way funds has gone up. And so this is just going to exacerbate that cycle. That's exactly right. And I mean, I think that that's sort of one of the things that we're keeping our, our, an eye on long term. I mean, we see the our job is United Way as dealing, helping the community deal with the most acute needs that are out there. But certainly we have our, our eye on the ball of keeping our operations up and running. And you're right, workplace giving has declined, um, you know, and so that that becomes even more critical that, that during this time that we're providing meaningful resources to the community because long term, you know, this is probably going to take a hit to the sector. Just as an aside, last week, one of the things that we did was hosted a webinar for the nonprofit sector in the Acadiana region to dial in. And we, we told them, look, 39 hours of the week, 59 hours of the week, whatever it is, you're thinking about your mission and the people you serve. But if you don't spend one hour of the week thinking about your organization, you may not be here to serve people in a couple months or you know half a year. So we're also trying to, at the same time, keep our eye on that ball as well, because it's clear that over the long haul, our nonprofit sector is going to be needed to help recover. And Carly, uh, we talked about workplace giving. You'd mentioned that. And of course, that's probably an issue all over the country. But you're in a particularly difficult situation. The the oil industry has been down for five and a half years. Some people are saying that this most recent decline might be the death knell for some of these companies. And these were not only the best paying jobs, but I imagine they were big contributors to you. That's exactly right. And that's, you know, it was very clear um, when I started this job about three and a half weeks ago, or almost, I think we're somewhere in there. I'm losing count at this point. Um, but it was very clear that I was already in a situation because of the local economy where it was a turnaround position. Um, you know, I, I came in with some really clear plans on how we were going to do that. And as I think maybe it was Christian that referred to, had to readjust those pretty quickly because we need to respond to this crisis. And, you know, United Way has a long history of being, um, you know, at the center of helping communities recover and rebuild. And so I expect we'll be there, but there's no doubt that 
um, this disaster, both with Louisiana being at the epicenter of the United States outbreak, or one of them, I guess, there's a couple, as well as um, Lafayette and Acadiana's um, recent decline economically, in part, in large part because of the oil industry, you know, we're going to have a lot to recover from. We were already um, as as Christian can share, we were already as a community in a difficult economic time that this is likely to exacerbate. So we certainly are, you know, have our eye on both of those balls. I mean, do, do you look, we, we've seen even in, say, the newspaper industry, you know, people are furloughing employees like it, yeah. like every week there's a new industry that this touches in a way that we didn't necessarily anticipate or maybe we should have anticipated it. I mean, are you concerned that some of these nonprofits that you work with, maybe United Way specifically, is, is going to have to make similarly difficult decisions? I think that all businesses that are making any kind of payroll are going to have to be looking at that. I mean, I can tell you that in the you know, short to medium term, we don't have plans for that. But I'm sure you know one of the other things we did last week was we sent an email out um, to the entire nonprofit sector, asking them questions if they were feeling um, comfortable sharing. What's your approximate monthly operating budget? Are you feeling like you can cover that for for how long? And what's your employee base? Because you know, by some estimates, and I don't have the data in front of me, but I think we're about ten percent of the the economy, and so we're a critical employment resource as well as service provider in the community. And I think. Just just because we're nonprofits doesn't mean we don't also have to look at our, the business side of our organization. And I think you'll see over time as this as this crisis goes on that, you know, if the donations struggle to come back because of the economy, you'll see some shifts in the sector because of that. And some of that could eventually be be staff cuts or, you know, salary salary decreases or, or whatever needs to be done. Carly, do you see looking out a, a little bit down the road where maybe this and it could be a, a something of a, of a silver lining or maybe a more efficient way to operate? But do you see this maybe forcing more collaboration among nonprofits? I mean, I'm just familiar with so many small organizations that were struggling on the best days a month ago, right? And and now they're just, I don't know how they're going to make it, but maybe this pushes some smaller organizations to merge, you know, and, and we have fewer out there, but maybe they're more effective working more closely together. You know, having been, um, uh, having spent about half my career in the nonprofit sector, I can tell you that's a con- continual theme is, is are we delivering services as, as efficiently efficiently as possible? And are we using donor resources as well as we could? And I don't doubt, you know, the the phrase necessity is the mother of invention. I don't doubt that that's going to come into play in the sector as well. I can tell you like, as part of United Way is one of the lead organizations in Acadiana on the on our local VOAD chapter, which is volunteer organizations active in disaster. And I can tell you right now, we're having about 70 different groups call into morning calls where we talk about coordinating resources. So I am optimistic that we'll, we'll be able to um, take advantage of overlaps in mission and, and hopefully work together so that we can more efficiently deliver on what our community needs. You know, you mentioned earlier that this has caused uh, you guys to really even think about how you're dealing with the delivery of the service, right? If you're collecting food, if you're trying to provide and distribute that food, can you talk to us a little bit about sort of actual logistical challenges that a pandemic, you know, uh, poses when you're trying to deliver essential services to people? Sure. So I'll just, I'll give you an example, which um, we we have set up a drive for PPEs, which 
three weeks ago, probably most of us didn't know what that acronym meant, but personal protective equipment for medical um, folks. And so we've set one up here at our warehouse, um, which was, you know, procure our warehouses so we can be assisting in disaster. And, you know, we've made it a completely touchless donation system where people can drop off their, their masks and their gloves that they may have extra of for whatever reason. But we had to rethink. I mean, normally a, a volunteer drive of where we're collecting supplies, we've got 20 people out here unloading trucks, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is in a time of community spread that that's not safe. Same thing with your, your normal food drives or your normal supply drives. We're having to rethink those. So we're, we're revisiting protocols and we're talking really closely with the Office of Public Health to make sure anything that we do start up in the way of uh, uh, supplying food to people um, that we're doing it so that we do not um, do not have community spread after we're done, because that that would sort of be the worst case scenario. Um, and everyone's you know everyone's been great, but we have a lot to a lot of work to do. Carly Omlabar is president and CEO of United Way of Acadiana. Carly, thank you so much for joining us and out to lunch. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for this special edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Now, we edited these conversations to fit into the time slot here in your NPR radio station. You can hear the longer versions of these conversations wherever you normally get your Out to Lunch podcast in Acadiana, Baton Rouge, or New Orleans. If you're in New Orleans, remember you can get pickup and delivery from Commander's Palace by going to commanderspalace.com. In Baton Rouge, you can get pickup and delivery from Mansers on the Boulevard by calling them at 225-923-3366. In Lafayette, you can pick up and get delivery from the French press, including their new family dinner, by calling them at 337-233-9449. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical director is Eric Morell. I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. And in Baton Rouge, I'm Stephanie Regal. We'll see you back here next week for more Out to Lunch Louisiana. Until then, if you're an essential industry and still going to work, thank you. And remember to take care of yourself. If you're not going to work, please stay home and stay safe. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. 